This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know, interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always. You know, it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches with coaches singles and and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and and I think happier uh, happier life. But there's there's certain things that have to be there. And, and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You, you, you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about. Uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school. Or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us uh, and especially and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an age group and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. 
and you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29 – you'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage but the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce that doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25 and again if you're planning on if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married you may be you know out of the market out of the game so There's something going on, obviously, because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Just wait. Wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you've seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about – since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that the that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, And we talked about it, the fact if you, if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be you know, um, basically not 
into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro-marriage. You, actually, you, you don't want to marry, A, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage, and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's gonna. You're probably gonna slow down your path. So parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, increasingly, identity identity theft is a fact of life, and we might have uh, once hoped to protect ourselves from all of this stuff that's going on, from the hackers, you know, from people phishing and stealing uh, your important information online. But in the end, that's getting getting a lot tougher, and it might even just be impossible to really protect yourself— so we wanted to bring in a true blue expert. Joining us today is Adam K. Levin, 
He is the author of the book Swiped, How to Protect Yourself in a World Full of Scammers, Fishers, and Identity Thieves. And hopefully he can enlighten us on this subject. Adam, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for the invite. You bet. Talk to us about this. I mean, with the whole Ashley Madison scam, you hear the White House uh, you know, the, the people are breaking in and actually accessing private records of the White House. If the White House can't keep their records secure, are any of us safe? I don't think we really are. I mean, I think we're living in a world where breaches have become the third certainty in life. <laughs> and when you look back at some of the breaches we've had, I mean, Ashley Madison, the information, though terrifying to the people who were involved, is not half as sensitive as the information, for instance, from the Office of Personal Management in Washington. Oh, yeah. Which is like the HR department for the government. I mean, there you're talking about every possible piece and shred of evidence that you could use against a human being. Uh, we're on those databases. You have the most sensitive information from investigative reports for people who are looking for security clearances, not to mention 1.1 million fingerprints. I mean, oh, I don't know what's left. Right. So you had that, you had the hack of the White House, the State Department, the Postal Service, uh, Anthem, where you had 80 million Social Security numbers, J.P. Morgan, 83 million accounts, um, and the list goes on and on and on. So as a consumer, you can do everything right. You can do all of the things everyone told you to do, from not carrying your Social Security card to protecting the amount of information you have from people who you don't know to securing your devices, to shredding everything in sight. But if you're on the wrong database at the wrong moment and the wrong person gains unauthorized access, you could be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. Mm. Well, and, and what do you do, Adam? I mean, I guess you hear now all of these companies that'll protect your identity, they'll ensure your identity. Are any of those worth looking at? Nobody can protect your identity. Right. I mean, you, you, are, you are probably in the best position because you have more control over at least the immediate data that you have, although so many people are tracking us, collecting information, disseminating information. Some of the information you know they're collecting. Yeah. Some you don't. So as a result, you have to reorient your thinking. And that is instead of saying, I have to prevent, 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 sure, in a perfect world we could prevent, you have to say to yourself, I now have to adopt what I call the three M's. You have to minimize your risk of exposure, which we just talked about. Plus, you can do things like put a security freeze on your credit, which means nobody, including you, can get access to your credit. You use long and strong passwords as opposed to silly passwords that anyone can decipher, like password <laughs> or one, two, three, four, five, or something like that. Um, you 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 become far more circumspect in what you do when you go online. You use the most secure privacy settings. Uh, you don't give out your full birth date. You use separate email addresses. I mean, you know, it sounds a little paranoid, but you use separate email addresses for certain things you do in life. Like the email address uh, that you would use for your financial services account is not the email address that you should be using for your dating sites. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Right. Uh, and use nicknames. Also, with security questions, now eventually we're going to go to two-factor authentication. It's going to be more sophisticated. You're going to go to biometrics. But security questions, the, the key is not to tell the truth. The key is to be consistent. So if you give a maiden name for your mother that's not your mother's maiden name, all that matters is that the company that asked you to answer the secret question gets the same answer that you gave them hmm. when you gave them the secret question. Right. Um, so 
you know, you do things like that. Use a nickname. Don't use your full name. When you get on social networking, do you really have to take pictures of everything that might be geotagged, which would lead people to where it is? Do you need to show people your new car, your new credit card, your new license, the fancy <laughs> painting you just bought, the new jewelry you just got? No, you really don't. So then you go to the second M, which is monitor. And that means you go to places like annualcreditreport.com, which is the government-mandated site, where you get a free copy of your credit report from three, each of the three bureaus. You're entitled to at least one a year, depending upon the state you live in. The second thing is you come to sites like credit.com, where you get a free overview of your credit, plus credit scores that are updated for free every month. So if there's a precipitous drop in your credit score, you can't explain. That could be an indication that you have an identity theft problem. You check your accounts on a daily basis, or you can sign up for what's called transactional monitoring, where your bank, your credit card company, uh, will notify you in the event that there's any activity in your account, and then it's up to you to decide whether that's you or not. Hmm. You know better than they know. Yeah. Because, because a lot of these credit cards that are stolen, for instance, are sold by zip code. So your bank may see a transaction that's in the same zip code you live in, or in the same zip code in which you do a great deal of shopping, but it may not be you, but yeah, you know. Right. So, so you do that. You can also sign up for more sophisticated forms of monitoring, which are offered by a number of those companies that claim they can protect your identity, uh, but not just credit monitoring. And if you read Brian Krebs, which everyone in the security world does, he's, a, he's not a big fan of credit monitoring. He likes credit freezes. He likes identity monitoring, which is where if there's any change in your information, uh, you're notified. Uh, and they have a new, a new uh, notification now called the Me Not Me. And that's instead of the old days where they would say, hey, Matt, a couple weeks ago somebody opened an account in your name, and you may not even know till you look at your credit report. Mm. But now they're saying, hey, Matt, there's somebody attempting to open an account in your name right now. Is it you? Yes or no? Yeah, I've actually had that happen to me. That is yeah. terrifying. <laughs> Uh, yeah, totally. and is it you and they're, and they're actually pretending to be you? Yes, mm. yes. And so, and so many people do it because there's so much information out there. It's so easy for them to do that. Yeah, right. And then, and then there's the third M, and I talk about all these in Swipe, but the third M is, is manage the damage. Now, a lot of people think that's very expensive where you have to go to some of these extremely uh, sophisticated programs and they pay a lot of money. You'd be surprised you don't. There are a lot of institutions with whom you have relationships, uh, credit card, uh, certain credit card programs, credit unions, smaller banks, uh, insurance companies through your homeowner or auto owner policy, even employee assistance programs where you work that offer you help to get through an identity theft problem. But what you need to do is ask. Ask your insurance agent. Ask your bank rep. Ask the HR department at work. Do you have a program like this? Am I in it? If not, what do I need to do to get in it, and what's it going to cost? Mm. I mean, it really, it becomes a full-time job, but I know in your book you talk about the people stealing your identity. It's their full-time job, too. No, if you think about it, the reason why a lot of these guys are very successful in stealing identities is because we all have day jobs. Yeah. However, for them, we are their day jobs. That's right. That's huge. So, I mean, you got to get real about it and sit there and and manage it, monitor it, and, and I guess, too, be educated and informed. I mean, I, there's so many of us that are just from a different generation where it used to be the problem was all the junk mail we'd get. 
<laughs> now it's like somebody can steal your identity, steal your credit card information, and you know, go to Cancun. Well, and, and you know, here's the here's the problem. Where you really have to be careful is when you're contacted by someone or some institution that leads you to believe that it's an official contact, whether it's your your bank, your credit card company, the utility company, the Internal Revenue Service, the jury commissioner, any one of these things, and they start asking you for information about you. Hang up. Yeah. Call back the official number. Get it online. Flip over your credit or debit card. It's one thing if you're authenticating yourself when you've made the phone call and they don't have any idea who you are. Right. But if they've called you, they sure as heck should know who you are. And if they don't, you don't want to be on that phone anyway. No, it's so real. I just had a son that, you know, they started asking him all of this personal information. And um, he's he's like, is this legit? And we looked it up and it wasn't. I mean, it, part of it is just... I guess follow your gut to some degree, right? If it's not feeling right, get out of there. If it's something's weird, stop. You always have to say to yourself, who's asking me the question? Why are they asking me the question? What are they asking me? Is is it logical? Yeah. Now, you know, there's one scam. They call you up on the phone and they say, uh, Matt, is this your credit card number? Uh-huh. And it is. You go, yeah. Is this your expiration date? You go, yeah. And you say to yourself, wow, these people must be the bank. Yeah. They know a lot about me. Then they say... Please, you know, flip over your car just to authenticate who you are. Can you please tell us the security card? Uh, red, red light. Yeah. Now, now, how this call goes on, which is even better, is you give them your security code, and they go, oh, you're a victim uh, of identity theft. Hang on for a second. We're going to put our security department on. They put their, quote, security department on. They go, Matt, uh, just for further verification, what's your social security number? You have now just oh, given my them heavens. Yeah. the keys to the kingdom. Just like, example, catfishing. I'm sure you heard a lot yeah. about it. Oh, yeah. Big problem. Uh, there was a mother-daughter uh, uh, combo that just got busted out of Colorado. Now, they, explain it, though, Adam, because others might not know. It's where, right. pe- it's where people are they're luring you in, acting like there's someone else, and they, they can date. I mean, there's dating catfishing going on. Yep. Yeah, think about it uh, this way. And, and here, here are some of the red, the red flags. And this, again, is, is it logical? What are they asking me? You start communicating with someone online, and within three or four exchanges, suddenly they love you. Yeah. Love you, can't wait to see you, need to see you. But then, second red flag, they never seem to be available. <laughs> Their phone isn't working, so they got to email you. Or they're, they're texting you because they can't call you because there's something wrong. They can't Skype you because of their, um, something wrong with the webcam. Or something else wrong. Or they have a problem. They can never seem to show up. Third thing is you feel like you're in a B-movie. Every line is like you feel like you're in Casablanca. <laughs> uh, oh, and, and then there's grammatical errors. And then you say to yourself, I don't know, but have I read this before somewhere? So you Google it. If you go, wow, that's a line from whatever, beware. Then they 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 start with the um, emergencies. I'd love to call. Oh, my God, there's somebody at the door. It's the police. Uh-huh. Or my child was just kidnapped. Or I have to run because my child just got injured and I have to go to the emergency room. Or Always there's yeah. something. And, and then they start asking you for information that you say to yourself, why do they need this information about me? Or 
money. You know, it's like, I really want to see you, but I can't afford the plane ticket. Or I'm in the middle of this major project. I'm overseas, right? If I just had a few more dollars, I could get it done. Or my kid has to go to the dentist. Is there any way you could help me out? I mean, I'll make it up to you. Just loan me the money. Or what they like to do is they like to send you e-cards, except that it's not really an e-card. And when you click on the link, malware goes on your computer, and now they take over your computer. Holy so, cow. And, and they're really good at it. And as we were mentioning, so the mother-daughter in Colorado built 300 women out of over a million dollars. They were pretending to be lonely, deployed American soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan or in Europe, and they just needed a few bucks to, to be able to you know, go away for the weekend. They really want to come home and visit their family. They'd like to come visit you. Could you wire them a little bit of money? That kind of stuff. Holy cow. Man, Adam, uh, you've opened our eyes. Let's take a break. We'll come back, continue this discussion. We're speaking with Adam Levin, author, author of the book Swiped, How to Protect Yourself in a World Full of Scammers, Fishers, and Identi- Identity Thieves. He's a longtime consumer advocate and identity fraud expert. He's helping us understand uh, how to make our online world as safe as we can make it. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we're talking about internet security. Do you feel safe on the internet? Because honestly, you, you probably shouldn't. Now, I don't want to scare you, but the reality is the horses are running away. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's certain things, there's so many benefits, and it's incredible, and it's here to stay. So we're trying to figure out how we have an online life without losing our shirt, you know? How do we not lose our shirt? And it's almost like we've you got to get back to the basics, folks. We've all been given a brain. And I mean, I get the technology of everything and the tricks are amazing of how they can get your information, but there's still just certain things that if it doesn't seem right, if it seems too easy, if it seems too perfect, it might be. Joining us on the phone, Adam Levin is with us. He is the author of the book Swiped, How to Protect Yourself in a World Full of Scammers, Fishers, and Identity Thieves. Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And yeah, the horses have not only run away, but I think someone bagged them and dragged them off kicking <laughs> it's, it's so true. Yeah, and they're now in the somebody's trunk. Um, That's for sure. Talk to us about, because in a way, the reality is everything's moving this way toward the internet. So is it... Is it, Adam, really um, – I, I, I know people that they won't be on any social media. They won't give their name out. They won't shop online. They won't do anything. But I sit there and I think, man, I can order a watch band and have it to my house inexpensively, really, in two days. And I don't want to lose that, but I also don't want to end up, you know – with some guy in Russia pretending like he's me. 
Do I just have to give up the dream of security? No, no don't give up the dream. I mean, look, the reality is that, that we're getting smarter. Our security guys are getting smarter. Companies are sufficiently terrified now that they're taking, uh, you know, greater steps. I mean, the problem is, now look at it from the perspective of a company. Yeah. Sometimes it's difficult for consumers to do, and I get that. But as a defender, you've got to get everything right, everything right. You have right. to have the right training, the right software, the right filtering systems, the right monitoring, the right everything. You could spend a fortune. And yet all you need is one person making one mistake, clicking on the wrong link, which is why we should be training people over and over and over again. And, and they do that, and all of a sudden malware gets in the system that can bring down a company and can take tens of millions of people with it. Now you have egregious examples like the Office of Personal Management where, I mean, the only thing that didn't happen is that the inspector general didn't staple warnings inside the eyelids of every human being that worked there. <laughs> That's that, right. You know, everything you're doing is wrong, that you're not providing proper security, that you're way behind the times, you're using software that isn't properly supported, all these kinds of I mean, they screwed up, yeah. bottom line. And now there's, there's hell to pay. And unfortunately, 21 million people are in the process of, of being the collateral damage in that disaster. Well, it seems like I would be safer with Amazon than the federal government because Amazon's making a huge living on this, and the federal government's 30 or 40 years behind. Oh, clearly. But I think what you have, and that's why the federal government is finally going outside the federal government and going to organizations like Google and Amazon and saying, what can we do together? Yeah, that's and, great. You know, they're trying to do information sharing and threat sharing and all of that, and people are screaming NSA. And look, the NSA, however you feel about it, it happened. They're doing it. Right. Where they're finding ways of curtailing it, but that's, that's, that horse is way out of the bar. <laughs> so the situation is how do we operate in the world today? And again, as I was saying, as a defender, you've got to get everything right. As an attacker, as an intruder, all you need to do is find one moment, one single point of vulnerability, and you're in. Yeah. And, and that's why people have to be so, for instance, if you're on a database of a company that's been breached, especially a big retailer, one of the things you have to start thinking about is when you get an email that's presumably from that company, if they or, frankly, anybody asks you to click on a link, don't do it. Go to the company website directly. It's why a lot of people would prefer to use apps even than browsing, especially on mobile devices, hmm. because the app is sanctioned. It's it, Presumably, you've, you've researched and it is from the real company. That takes you directly to the website. You don't have to worry that someone has just created a clone website. But I always say to people, you got to think before you click. Don't click on it, even if it comes from somebody you think is your best friend. If I have people who are buddies of mine who send me something, I call them on the phone and say, I just want to check. Yeah. Did you just send me something. You know, it's that one-minute phone call. Another example, you have an app on your phone for ease because you want to speed your lock on. Every time you go on, you save the user ID or the password or both. So now you just click and you're in. What happens if somebody steals your smartphone? <laughs> and you've true. already saved this. All they do is they click. Now they're in, in, your, in your financial site. People go, but I don't want to type in my user ID and <laughs> password every time. And my answer is, yes, you do. Right. Yes, I... you do. And then how many sites use as your user ID your email address? 
Oh. Well, that means if someone were to hack into your email, they know your email address. I mean, so many people's email addresses are out there. So many databases have been breached that had millions of email addresses. And the problem with a breach database with an email address, and you know, in the old days, an email address was never really considered personal identifying information. Well, now your name is part of your email address, or yeah. your work is part of your email address. But worse, worse, if it's on a database that's hacked, what do they have? They not only have your data, but they have the context. So that means they know that Matt shopped at, at, uh, at Target, so now they can send you something from Target saying, hey, Matt, you're a Target shopper. He wanted to send you something. Please click here. Those are the kinds of things you got to be careful about. Holy cow. Adam, you're making it worse. You're giving me too many problems. Because you know, it's just one of those things where you just, you just think about it and, and think logically and say, you know what, I'll take the extra second to yeah. put in my username and I'm, password. I won't use a username that every human being in the world who knows mm-hmm. me could figure out in 25 seconds. If you look at what happened with Apple with the nude gate, yeah. With all the celebrities, they brute forced their way on there. They didn't. This wasn't some super sophisticated hack where they figured out how to defeat the Apple security algorithm. No. What they did is they went to a lot of celebrity websites and then they started testing different things that they said, eh, these are probably passwords that Jennifer Lawrence might use. And bingo, they're into Jennifer Lawrence's account or yeah. into anyone else's account who is a celebrity. That's why you have to be much more clever. You have to be creative when you create these passwords. Here's a system that people can use. If you have a favorite phrase, hopefully one that nobody else but you knows, you, you then take the phrase, and this is the core of your password. Then what you do is whatever website you're going to, because you've got to make it a little easy to remember these things. Right. Whatever website you go to, take a letter or something that reminds you of the website. And then at the end of this password, uh, put a couple numbers in and change it up, switch it up every month. But for instance, maybe it's the quick brown frocks is your favorite phrase or TQBF. And you have one in capital, one in lowercase. Uh, instead of an S, you use a dollar sign. Instead of an O, you use a zero. These kinds of things. These are you know little things that you can do to be more creative. Man, and that's really, when you think about it, it's not that complicated and now, i mean now there's even apps that will help you remember all your passwords so i mean if you if you if it's not natural to you to do all of this it's just adding one more level of complexity to it or just one more i mean adding a little more time to your life to have to enter in a password on your phone i didn't even think about the phone plus we haven't even talked about medical records i mean no. that that's well, a whole other world isn't it no that's a total nightmare but the and and what what people don't, don't, you know, when they think about it, like, for instance, when Anthem was breached, they said, well, bad news, they got your Social Security, they got, but good news, they didn't get your medical information. Okay, so they can't, they can't extort you. Yeah. But what they don't understand is if they have your personal identifying information, they have enough to recreate you for the purpose of doing medical identity theft. Mm. And the problem with medical identity theft is that the information of the thief becomes commingled with the information of the victim and all of a sudden the blood type changes or an allergy like penicillin uh, disappears and as a result when you get treated the doctor is looking at the file and going well I don't there's no allergy to penicillin I can use penicillin and all of a sudden oh. the person goes into cardiac arrest. Yeah. or 
you use uh, the, the blood type change, they give you a transfusion, it's the wrong blood. Mm. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, that, that can really happen. For, and now, I'll give you a, another one to even make you a little bit more paranoid. <laughs> we are living in a world that is rapidly approaching uh, what the fellow uh, uh, Ashton, who created the concept of the Internet of Things, he, it's the sensor net. And that's everywhere you, you go. Almost everything around you is gathering information. Now, arguably, it's all the different products in your home are gathering information for the purpose of sending it back to the manufacturer in order for the manufacturer to figure out how they can better make a product that will respond to your needs or wants or desires. But some things are so crazy, they have a mattress cover now that can tell when you go to sleep, when you wake up, it could turn on the coffee pot. It could turn on the light. Holy cow. And, and you know, there are, uh, you know, with Nest that controls the temperature or with security systems or webcams in your house, if someone were to hack in and gain control of those things, they could lock your house, turn off your lights, turn up the heat, hold you hostage. There was a movie with Bruce Willis called right. Hostage yep. about this situation. So, so really, it's... As this continues to happen, I mean, I guess what's going to happen to us is we have to be more informed and make more choices more regularly so that we're not just having every sensor reading us. I mean, all the time they'll say, would you like me to automatically send information back to the the provider of this app to let them update their their systems? I always say no to that. I, I say no to anything that's more. No, no. You're absolutely, you know, why do you need to make it easier? For why that? would I, I make mean, it easier, looking, right? If, if you're thinking about it, we're living in a world now where we are not the user. We are the product. Yeah, that's and, true. And you have to act accordingly. So, for instance, when you get all of these Internet of Things devices, don't use the default password that's there. Read the manual, and, and where it says, here's how you change the password, change the password. Mm. Whether it's changing the password to the router at your home, through which everything goes, uh, as well as the uh, the password for these different devices. It's one of those things where it takes a few minutes, and you go, you know, that's really behind my, beyond my uh, technological experience. I don't know if I can really do this. You don't have a choice now. Just like when you go to websites and you have the opportunity to do two-factor authentication, yeah. which is where you enter uh, something, then it sends you a code that you enter, and you go, oh, this is such a pain in the butt. Yeah. Well, do I it. tell you what? Compared to what you're going to go through, that's right. It's nothing. That's right. No, I think I think that's it. And I think, we, you know, we don't want to be put out. But you have no idea what put out is until somebody's stolen your identity. So in the book, Swiped: um, How to Protect Yourself in a World Full of Scammers, Fishers, and Identity Thieves, it reviews uh, Adam your your top three M's: minimizing risk, monitoring your identity, and managing the damage. As we leave, we've got about 30 seconds, 40 seconds. What, what would you say we should walk away with instead of just terror and fear and paranoia? What should we be thinking going forward? I think what people need to think is, you know, when somebody says the word portfolio, the instant reaction most people have is investments. Yeah. You have to remember that you have a credit portfolio and you also have an identity portfolio. And even though the world is as complex as it is, you are the master of your credit and identity portfolio. There is no one in a better position to do everything possible to protect you when you realize the fact that no one else is really going to do it 
as thoroughly as you are, because no one has the interest that you have in your security, because the ultimate guardian of the consumer is the consumer. That's right. No, that's great. Hey, great advice. And uh, Adam, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work. Everybody go check out that book, Swiped, How to Protect Yourself in a World Full of Scammers, Fishers, and Identity Thieves. It's your world, folks. It's your life. If you're going to use the great benefits of the Internet, prepare yourself. You are the master of your portfolio. Great advice, folks. Let's uh, take a break, come back, wrap this this show up, uh, this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be doing a little uh, Coach's Corner when we come back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, if that didn't scare you enough, talking to Adam Levin, but the reality is it's taking over, and it's scary to think that it's monitoring everything you do, but uh, if any of you are into Netflix, you also are in trouble. According to a recent study from the group TDG Research, did you know that the average Netflix viewer watches about an hour and a half of content per day? Ben's like, I'm like four times more than that. That's nothing. That's nothing, man. So, you know, Netflix, you pay about eight bucks a month and you get, you can go watch a bunch of shows. Never as many as you'd like. But... According to this uh, research, all of this time that we spend watching television, it's now surpassed other traditions, time-honored traditions like reading. So now we spend an hour and a half watching Netflix. Traditionally, we would spend about 49 minutes a day reading. Not anymore. 70 minutes a day eating. So we watch more Netflix than we do read or eat. That is pathetic. The demise of the human race. What is happening to us? Uh, Worse, though, it's even more than we now want more Netflix than we even care about eating, having sex. Our teens are spending more time watching programming on Netflix than spending time with their families, hanging out with friends, video gaming, or playing sports. So maybe the big problem with the all this technology push, maybe it's not about your identity. Maybe that's to be expected. But maybe the scary thing is just the simple time that we're now dedicating to all of this technology. It's taking us away from what might matter most to us. To what? To go watch old episodes of, you know. 30 Rock, is that what it's called? Or some of these shows. That's our that's our new love. But remember, and I think that was great advice from Adam. In the end, folks, you are the captain of your soul, right? You are the master of your life. And no doubt about it, Netflix is it's interesting. It's it's a great, you know, drug to just put yourself to sleep with. The problem, I guess, in the end is if it's costing you valuable relationships, if it's costing you, you know, your identity, if it's costing you your your confidence, your self-esteem, your self-worth. 
So just focus on it. I mean, again, we're not here to scare you to death. Just want to give you the the real true blue information and see if we can't actually have some progress in our lives. Not to be feared. Don't fear it. Don't even just hide yourself from it. If you still want to go take advantage and, and make it a part of your life, do that. But use your head. Lead it. This is what we're going to try to do is lead our lives here, right? And if we lead it, and there are great things you can watch on these shows as well. Spend some more time with your family. Have conversations about what you're watching. And whatever you do, don't watch anything with zombies. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system, don't always, they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are or you could just shut your flapper and – Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? 
I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. <laughs> Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad? So I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. It's your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do is just take the – I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. But he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons – This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you. You and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We can't do the show without you. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist, and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. (laughs) Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're, they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend... That was a, just a really good listener. Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out? Oh, it's it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, 
there's there's these signs, okay? I call them you don't need to just always be I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I was certified in you know life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, uh, respirations, if you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs. And then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs. Right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping and instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion. I look for misunderstanding. And I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person. Right? So if, if my... If my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet and, and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? I mean, last year's example of, of this same, you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, 
when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about. A little coach's corner for you right there. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, man, so honored by our next guest, who's actually in studio with us today. His name is Vishnu Adhikare, and he is a, an in-country director in Nepal for Choice Humanitarian USA. And uh, that is a that is basically a nonprofit organization trying to make life better for people around the world. Um, and and uh, Vishnu Adhikare, he is. Uh, to me, he's a very he's a very inspirational person. He's a humanitarian. Some, if you've ever seen the movie Meet the Mormons, Bishnu was just one of the people featured in that movie. Um, but he is from Kathmandu. Is actually lives in Kathmandu. He's uh, very well educated. Was actually educated as a civil engineer in Russia, and also has another degree in environmental policy. But his ultimate goal in life, it seems to be, Bishnu, um, to just improve the lives of people in the world. Bishnu Adhikari, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. And uh, it's great to be uh, among you and your audience this morning. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, really, Bishnu, um, we live in a world that's really complicated Lots of political issues going on, lots of turmoil, war. Uh, people are suffering different economic issues and levels. And then out of nowhere, an earthquake in Nepal, 7.8 and then another 7.3, right, on the Richter scale. Um, and all of the Nepalese turned upside down. Uh for a country like Nepal that is not prepared in uh, handling these massive natural disasters, um, it's been a great uh, big blow to to the national economy. Yeah, uh, about nine hundred thousand private homes gone flat. Holy cow! Most of our ancient uh, temples and um, uh, Palaces and other monuments have gone flat. Uh, Twelve, more than twelve thousand uh, uh, public school gone flat. Twelve thousand schools. Yes, that left one point two million uh, children out of school. That it, it's it's a big disaster for a yeah. small uh, subsistence economy like Nepal. Well, and you, long before the earthquake. You were working to to build Nepal anyway, to just take it, to just bring water to the communities, to just bring schools to the community and build schools. And you were doing that all out of your kind of your own motivation all before the earthquake. What um, talk to us about how 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 did you catch that bug? I mean, you're an engineer. You're not you're not a social worker. You're just a regular guy 
who who after I guess getting a degree in California moved back home and talk about that story of how you caught the desire to help long before even the the earthquake. Uh, I I think it has to do uh, something with my brought up, like I was uh, raised in a a big family out in the mountain uh, in Lamjung districts. It's the western part of uh, Nepal. Um, in a family that struggled with uh, basics, uh, food, shelter, water, basic education, and all that. And uh, it's been my desire always to... Um, help those kind of uh, families in that situation. Um, I mean, I I come out of that deeds of poverty through education. Yeah. And many people uh, on the way uh, scholarshiped me, and uh, I felt like it's, it's my time to give back. And uh, when I got my civil engineering degree from Russia and went back to uh, Nepal, uh, to see my parents, how they are doing. And uh, for the last uh, 20 years, um, after I left um, for a school in Pokhara and then to Kathmandu and then to Russia, nothing has been changed in the village. Mm. After all, the, after 20 years, you went and saw all this progress around the world and nothing had changed in the village. And I felt like, uh, wow, wow. Um, who going to do this? The government is out in Kathmandu, and yeah. they have their political issues, and uh, they have uh, excuses of not to have enough resources to cover the country and all, all kind of uh, excuses. So I thought, okay, it's my turn to do what I can do. So I was working for the Nepalese government, and uh, on top of that, I started volunteering for those who... Uh, can uh, and will support these uh, humanitarian efforts. You um, and, and you just started. You just started doing stuff. I guess one of the first things you did as an engineer w- was water. How? What motivated you to do the water? <laughs> to do the wells and to to get the the healthy water into the villages. Uh, I went back to see my parents, and my mother was still carrying uh, water on her back from. Uh, half an hour distance, um, and she was almost uh, 65 by then. I felt like uh, my education. You could fix that. Yeah. um, I should be um, working right away on this particular project, and uh, I started that. um, And it's been 18 years now. Hmm. That that project has um, served that community of Oklapani, and after the earthquake, I visited again visited the village. Oh, how are they doing? Uh, and a couple of houses gone uh, flat, but the water system water uh, still flowing, flowing and intact. And I felt really good. About oh, I it. bet you did. I and I am assuming your your mother and your your father felt incredible pride seeing their boy come back. And bring the water to the village. Uh, especially my father brags about uh, 
uh, himself that I mean I have a son like this and mm-hmm. that. But if he was an American, he'd be charging for the water. <laughs> Sad but true. Yeah, that's a neat. It's an, it's got to be a neat feeling. And then since then, you've actually gone on. And um, with with help from other like the World Bank, you've you've developed projects with World Bank, Asian Development Bank, U.S. Aid, but you've also been able now to do twenty one water projects, thirty three schools, nine hundred biogas digesters, just to help sustain these villagers throughout the country. Yeah, though uh, looks like these figures have uh, been. Um, You're doing even more. Increased lately, and uh, yes, it's we've been around uh, twelve districts in Nepal. Uh, after I started f- working full time for Choice Humanitarian from two thousand seven, though I started volunteering for them from nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, um, we've been able to um, accomplish uh, much. Again. I would like to draw attention to our uh, listeners of the radio that uh, it's not about infrastructure development alone. It's about the people's development, their thinking, their way of uh, coming up with the solution of their own problems. So you're trying, you're trying to work actually maybe more on the human the, – the development of the, their thinking – their own self-sufficiency, their own self-reliance, get that changed instead of just infrastructure. Yes. That's yes. Great. Some some infrastructures are critical, yeah. like water and some uh, uh, transportation and some basics. Those are critical. But uh, the uh, major f- philosophy of uh, Choice Humanitarian and my personal philosophy been uh, how to – build the people so that yeah. they can take care of themselves. Yeah. Uh, in a way, I'm not an out- outsider. I'm a Nepalese. Yeah. But uh, I have to work with other organizations to make it happen. And my desire and my conviction and deep desire is to uh, find a way to improve the local economy so that there is enough revenue for those kind of uh, development. Yeah. It and, takes money, right? No, There's a quote I always hear that says, no margin, no mission. So it takes the money, but the money has to be spent wisely and on the right thing. And it sounds like the investment in the human factor is essential for you. Yes. Uh, three years back, we started a program called Nepal Life Program. The... Um, objective of that program is to train leadership while doing an infrastructure project. Mm. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, I mean, uh, as our democracy is uh, very young and uh, people are learning to function um, in the committees and uh, groups, leadership is a vital uh, criteria and can pay a play a vital role in that process. And um, creditable leaders, as you know, yeah. wherever it is, whether it is United States or Russia even, yeah. and Nepal, wherever it is, uh, a trusted, 
creditable leadership is um, is a need. Yeah, and we started that process on the um, ground level, from the ground level, and we started that piloting program in uh, twenty VDC. VDC is an area uh, of about nine hamlets coming together. So about 75,000 people and 180 uh, hamlets. Mm. So and you started it in that group, that area. Yeah. The piloting consists of uh, uh, training leaders, helping budgetary support to do the basics projects that they need. Yeah. I mean, different NGOs and international agencies, they go and do things by themselves. Right. Okay. And that, in a way, uh, in a way, uh, they, uh, that discreditize the local capacity. Because they, they kind of insert themselves in and just take over and discredit the local, the local leadership instead of growing the local leadership. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, we trusted our funds to put in their account, the committee's account. Mm -hmm. And of of course, we have a hook there. Yeah. One of the signatories from our organization. But we we let them decide. And when they make decision, we're going to be among them. And if if we feel like the decision has uh, uh, and can go to... Uh, wrong direction, we kind of uh, insert our yeah. ideas. You coach Other, a little bit. Yeah. Otherwise, we are there as an observer. Yeah. And in many uh, third world countries, the problem is of uh, implementation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Resources are not enough. That's there. But even if you dump resources, there is no implementation capacity. Right, right. They have to know what to do and have the ability and the tools and the know-how to do it, yeah. which is which has got to be interesting when a foreign-trained engineer, and because what you learned about leadership in Russia, bringing that home and then teaching it to the people, it must be that's so empowering. Your goal is to empower them. Uh, actually, I haven't learned much uh, on leadership from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, I learned much from, uh, uh, I mean, from my experience working with international agencies. Yeah. I worked with uh, uh, the World Bank funded projects in Nepal and Asian development banks uh, as um, and USAID um, supported programs. So that helped me learn the culture of uh, performance. Mm-hmm. How how do you perform uh, with a time frame and allocated budget yeah, and, and get it done? Get it done. So that's that's the problem among the th- uh, developing countries that uh, we always struggle. There is a lack of uh, the performing uh, capacity. I I love that. Again, we're speaking with Bishnu Adhikare, um, who is. Uh, with Choice Humanitarian, he is one of their um, – what do they call you, Vishnu? You're one of their uh, – In-country in, oh, in in, director. In-country directors in the Nepal area. 
we wanted him on the show. Um, if you've ever heard the the quote, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach him how to fish, feed him for a lifetime, uh, this is what Bishnu is doing. And he's teaching leadership through um, projects. And we're going to take a break, come back, continue to understand what's going on. Remember, the goal of the show is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives and uh, today we're learning from Bishnu Adhikari about leadership and how to just not throw money at problems um, and not throw money at where people just need money. They also have to have the ability, the capacity to, uh, to do something with the money. And Bishnu's teaching us how he's using, how he's doing that in Nepal to help uh, rebuild and to actually just empower, maybe more importantly, souls. We'll take a break, my friends, and come right back. More right here on The Matt Townsend Show in a minute. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Bishnu Adhikari, and he is, um, they call him the humble humanitarian, but he uh, is works with Choice Humanitarian, and in fact, in 2010, received the Humanitarian of the Year Award from them. He uh, is from Nepal, uh, has an engineering degree from Russia. He also has another degree um in uh, what what was your other degree, Bishnu? Uh, international environmental policy. There you go, international environmental policy, and he is basically right now doing some some work in Nepal with with a really interesting model where instead of going in, remember, there's all of the rebuilding that needs to take place. He was giving us some of the numbers from the earthquake. Which it's just it's so tragic. Nine hundred thousand homes flat, twelve thousand schools flat. One point two million children don't have schools, and so there's a lot of work to do. And Bishnu's doing um, some research with about seventy five thousand people, where instead of just maybe dropping in money to fix the problem, he's trying to to teach leadership skills management skills, kind of uh, time management, project management skills as they're rebuilding these these cities, these villages. So as they're doing the project, he's also trying to strengthen the minds, the the hearts, and empower the people. And so is that, Bishnu, again, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Hey, thank you. And as you do that, so if you can prove this model works in your this study sample you're doing of about 75,000 people – what what do you hope the goal the future will be if this if you can prove the data that improving financially giving money along with empowering the people it works i think it's it can become a tool to eradicate extreme poverty from the world okay which is your goal get rid of poverty extreme poverty extreme, extreme poverty. poverty extreme poverty when i explain it it's uh people living uh, less than $1.25 per day. Mm. And uh, you can imagine that's, yeah. that's uh, um, exactly nothing. Right. 
So um, what happens to that group of people? Usually their children are not in school. Usually they have uh, uh, shelters that are not hygienic. Usually they don't have restroom. Mm. They usually um, uh, goes out on the field for their um, uh, daily evacuation. It's it's that kind of problem uh, in that among the extreme poor, and uh, from the humanitarian perspective, it's inhuman. Yeah, but from the economic perspective, it's lost of opportunity. Yeah. Because if you see the pyramid of um, uh, people living in different stages, there are very few percentages on the top of the pyramid. Right. And the middle of the pyramid, some percentage and a larger percentage on the bottom of the pyramid. And, and the bottom of the pyramid is the, the, those with extreme poverty? Yeah. Usually that's the case. So if we could take some of the, I guess, money from the top and empower the middle and the bottom of the pyramid, it would economically change the world too, positively. It it will economically change the world uh, positively. Uh, you don't have to walk around your neighborhood and feel bad about it. Right, right. Okay. Uh, you may have a decent home and a car and things, but you, when you go around and someone is suffering, uh, I mean, many people get hurt yeah. out of that. Yeah. So, and it's a loss of economic opportunity. If we, uh, and when we, it's not if. Yeah, it's going to happen. You yeah. When, if if we fail to do it in this generation, someone will do it next generation. I'm sure about that. Yeah. Because I have seen many people trying around the world, including Choice Humanitarian and our group. Yeah. Okay. So uh, if we could bring that bottom of the pyramid at least to the middle, right? they, they will be better consumer. They will be better um, uh, earning and contributing to the society. Mm-hmm. And it, it's going to be a better world uh, to live together. And a lot of that you're saying is changing the mind, changing how we see the world, knowing like you are so grateful for the the people that provided scholarships that allowed you to go get educated and they they may not even know you. They may not even know the impact that their, that their money donation had to changing you and now thousands and thousands of lives, but it matters just because you had an education. Uh, I mean, talking about myself, like uh, when I was in grade seven, that out in the village, our economic condition uh, became so bad, and my dad said, "Hey, it's enough is enough. Let's no no more schooling. Uh, stay home and do things that." And I I felt really bad. Did you? Yeah, because I was doing. Uh, I I think I was doing good in my studies. Yeah. Then, I got a scholarship to go to um, a small town called Pokhara um, for 8, 9, and 10. Hmm. And that changed my life entirely. I met uh, people who were um, successful in their lives, and uh, my classmates were sons of uh, ministers and all that, even from that smaller country. And now I remember 
and feel so grateful to the person who uh, gave that scholarship to me. Yeah. I, I don't know who he or she was. I wish I know them and I can hug them and thank them and tell them, hey, this is what I become because you... Mm-hmm. Because did, you donated, because yeah, you cared. Decided to care about those who had uh, been less fortunate. So it's uh, it's a perpetual effect. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's a multiplier effect. Right. I was benefited. Now it's my turn to help others do uh, similar opportunities. So one of the major component of Joyce's effort in Nepal is to provide school level and college level and uh, nursing scholarship to mm. the uh, young uh, young woman. The desire is to help them excel in their life. Uh, some will come back and be grateful. Others will go in their life and enjoy their life. Yeah, that's fine. Right, but we want to change change the world. What's it, it like when you see one of these young women you've helped come back? What's it like as you see that, knowing that, you know, that ripple, that your change has affected other changes? What does that do to you? Uh, it gives me immense pleasure and uh, satisfaction uh, as a person. Yeah. But when I lose myself in it and see the bigger picture, I feel like, Wow. Yeah. Now there there is an army of people who are there to change their lives and change change the lives of others yeah. who, who are less fortunate. I have seen during these uh, earthquakes uh, some of these life changing uh, people and moments in my life. Like uh, when I were uh, with a group of choice uh, people and volunteers to. Uh, clean up an area in Lubu, uh, out outskirt of Kathmandu. Pretty bad, badly damaged yeah. area. Their uh, narrow streets were filled with debris, and no uh, truck or uh, ambulance can get into their home. So, we went and helped clear the area for seven days. Um, it, it was a life-changing uh, experience. Okay. I met a wonderful man called Kiran Sresta. He's a musician, plays guitar. But when the earthquake um, hit hit his particular community and uh, help, he felt like he need to provide a leadership. Yeah, he organized his uh, neighbors together, and uh, even printed a T-shirt like. Now it's our turn to help our community. Is that what it said? And it, it just feels me so good yeah. that there are that many uh, good people around. And when I saw that, we jumped in and started helping him mm. because we want to help those who want to help themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the model, isn't it? And I guess overall, what I'm hearing too is that it's contagious. So once we start it, and, and not everyone will just jump in, but people, it sounds like, too, you're seeing and are just inherently good and want to give. And when they do, we elevate everyone around us. That's powerful. As we leave, um, just maybe teach us, where can we go if people are listening and they want to help Choice Humanitarian? What can they do 
so that they don't so that they can go empower others. Uh, so humanitarian has a couple of uh, interesting models, like they have um, expedition planned, and young people and others would those who would like to go and be on the ground and physically help, they can uh, participate in those expeditions. And I welcome them to come and join us in Nepal. And for the details, if you visit choicehumanitarian.org, log into that and uh, go and learn more. Yeah. Man. Well, Bishnu, you're amazing. Again, you don't want – it's not about you. You want to just – make sure we get as much help as we can to everyone in the world. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for being a leader. <laughs> he hates that idea, but you're a leader. Thank you so much, and it's, uh, it's been uh, good to be with you. Thanks, Bishnu. Bishnu Adhikari, again, go check out uh, the website choicehumanitarian.org and, and figure out how you can make the choice to lead and help others uh, become even more powerful in their own lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I mean, it's so true. We listen, we read. There's a bias, right? There's an inherent bias that we all have. And what it then does is it it actually impacts our selection process, right? So if I am biased against somebody and I, you know, I don't like Joe Blow from my office and I think he's just out to get me, then I'm not going to select all of the data that I notice about Joe Blow, just the data that supports my hypothesis that he's a jerk, that he's out to get me. I may not notice that he gives, you know, that he buys an extra lunch for somebody. I may not notice that. Or that he even invited me to his son's wedding. May not notice that. I only notice that he's out to get me. And the same is true when we think about um, our political candidates, when we think about the person running, think about it. If you are a conservative, in the back of your mind, are you not constantly thinking about Hillary's email scandals and how they're eventually going to tear her apart? And ironically, you don't even hear many articles about her email scandals in the liberal media. So why won't the liberal journalists pick up on it? And it's only those right-wing conspiracy groups. Bias. There's just bias. There's inherent bias. Is there an inherent bias uh, to the fact that Bernie Sanders is, is older and we want to know how old he is? And does age really matter? Well, it does with Bernie But is Rubio too young? It depends. If you're pro-Rubio, you want a young guy like Rubio. Come on. It's amazing. And one year, a candidate's age matters, and another year, it shouldn't matter. 
And we just heard a huge discussion a couple of weeks ago about Hillary Clinton. She's she's a yeller. She's a screamer. She's always screaming. You wouldn't say that if she was a man. So it's about bias. Everybody on earth has it. And what uh, our great guest uh, was talking to us about is that scientifically, we are going to make our argument not based on fact. We're going to first take our bias, our position, and then we're going to go look for the data that supports it. And the neat thing about data is you can make it say whatever you want it to say. That's why they call it the spin room. So after the New Hampshire election, you're going to see a bunch of spinners spinning. And so Hillary got close enough to Bernie that, oh, see, it wasn't a huge blowout. Or Bernie's pulling away, but of course he was going to. It's New Hampshire. He lives right by there. Anyway, watch the spinsters. And more importantly, notice you. Notice yourself. What do you believe? And how does your bias impact the data you're choosing and the candidates you're favoring? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We thought that we would have... You know, a lot of time to focus with all this technology, it would buy us more time, right? More time to be with the people we love, more time to be attentive and in tune. And in reality, what ends up happening is not even close. We still don't have time. And so, and what I'm talking about is a simple idea of being in love, right? So when somebody thinks about being in love, they always think of the love part. Like the the love is the is the important part. You got to as long as you have the love part, life is going to be great. But what I'm going to be focusing on is not the love part, but the in part. You know, the in. You got to be in love. It's kind of like being in debt. It's not the debt. It's being in the debt that's the problem. When you're inundated in the debt, ugh, it's the problem. But if we could be inundated in the love, then life would be great. We're just overwhelmed and so full of love for each other. So when we talk about it, I'm going to get into four different things to make sure that we get in. And our nature, really, uh, we've been told, is a great way to get in. And part of that is because it just automatically probably takes you to a whole different level of in vibration of life, I guess, because normally we're just kind of vibrating off of our screens and we're just feeling all of this intensity. In our marriages, in our relationships, four keys to get in. The relationship. Number one, you got to tune into your partner. I've been married 25 years in a couple of days. And um, here's the deal. If I don't listen to my partner, if I don't pay attention to my partner, then I do not have a clue what her needs are, her wants are. You have got to learn, all of us have got to learn to tune in to what's really going on with our spouse. What are they really thinking? By the way, like you remember the old radio tuner where you had to tune in and dial in the radio? You might have to adjust it depending on where you were. But the minute you tuned in, it would eliminate a lot of the static. It would get rid of some of the interference. We've got to figure out and be present enough with our spouses to be able to tune into what they're really trying to say. And after 25 years, we should be really good at it, right? Well, only if you've been in. If you haven't been in, then you're not going to be great at being able to dial into what your partner's saying. Some solutions for that are very simply... Find ways to clarify what your partner is saying. Don't assume you know what they mean because they're saying certain words. Ask them, what do you mean by that? When you say that, 
I don't know. I'm worried about today. It's not going to go so well. Don't assume you know exactly what that means and don't just like answer it for them. What do you mean? What are you worried about? And let them explain more. Spend more time actually looking at your partner. You know, it's easier to tune into something that you're looking at, right? It might be easier to tune into somebody that you're listening to. So we can tune in with our eyes. We can tune in with our ears. We can tune in with our whole heart. We got to tune into our partner. Another rule, allow your partner in. One of the biggest complaints I hear from par- uh, in marriage uh, coaching and relationship coaching is, I don't even feel like I know my husband. He doesn't even let me into his world. She asks you how your day is. You're like, fine, my day's fine. No more need to discuss it. Do you let your spouse in? Do they share what's really in their heart and in their mind? Do they feel safe enough to share it? Because if they don't feel safe enough to share it, they're not going to share it. Are you a, a safe spouse or will you know you get laughed at? We've got to allow our partners into our fears, our beliefs, our concerns, and that means you've got to be able to hear it. Uh, there was some interesting research done of women that say they want to hear what's going on in their husband's heart, what they're thinking in their mind. And as soon as the husband shares it, almost inevitably, the wife's like, oh, I can't believe you're thinking that. You always think that. I know. My bad. If you want to, your partner to share more, you've got to be able to handle what they bring, and you've also got to be able to make it safe. Another rule is stay more involved in each other's lives. A complaint I hear all of the time is it doesn't seem like my partner's even into the family. They're not even paying attention. They're never involved, which means, Dad, you need to help more. Be there for homework. Help your kids do their assignments. Run the carpools more. Pick up the team. Drive the team. Be involved. Also, can I just suggest watch out for how we do our distribution of chores and of um, division of labor. You will make these divisions when you're young, maybe naive. The wife does everything on the inside of the house. The husband does everything on the outside of the house. Be careful, ladies, because there's because we have lighting and technology inside the house. You can end up working all night till midnight, but we can only mow the lawn until it's dusk. If you want a fair and equal division of labor, we're going to have to learn to talk about it. And then last but not least, you got to touch. you got to be in touch with each other. If you remember, that's where a lot of the chemicals started in the first place. So make sure you're touching. Uh, and you can touch you know, in non-sexual ways. You can hold hands. You can hug. You can kiss in front of the kids and drive them crazy. That's the reason we're in love, right? Keep in touch. That's one of the goals. Stay involved. Allow your partner in and tune in to your partner. That's the way you stay in love. Interesting stuff, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, everybody, we we need to know how to speak, right? We've got to be able to present ourselves fairly well. And there is a, uh, a there's this trend sweeping the nation called the vocal fry. You've probably heard of it from various pop stars like Kim Kardashian is a very popular example one. A vocal fry is defined as the low, vibratory sound that comes in some people's speech 
particularly at the end of the sent of their sentences. It's it's a filler, I guess. We'll find out from the expert in just a minute. But it's something that may be impacting people's uh, trust in you. They may not like this type of speech. We we have an example we wanted to play for you from Jill Abramson, who was the former editor of the New York Times. And this was right after she accepted that role, that job. And uh, she, she kind of goes off into a little vocal fry moment. What does it mean to you to become the executive editor of the New York Times? It means the world to me. Uh, I grew up uh, here in Manhattan and uh, the New York Times was worshipped in my family. Do you hear that? That's the vocal fry. It's like, you know, it's this it's a sentence that just seems like a run on sentence because all the words seem connected because we just keep vibrating through the whole thing. Is it a problem? Let's find out. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Liberman, and he is an American linguist and um, also a professor with a dual appointment at the University of Pennsylvania as a trustee professor of phonetics in the Department of Linguistics and as a professor in the Department of Computer and Information Sciences. He joins us now, actually, I believe, from Germany, where he is um, at a at – a, like a, I don't know what they call them, like a conference there in Germany. Dr. Liberman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good to be here. Great to have you. Talk about what is a vocal fry and where did this come from? Is this a new idea? Has this been going on forever? Uh, well, three things. Uh, first, there's actually two technically different kinds of uh, ways of talking. Uh, one is what's what linguists and speech pathologists call vocal fry, and the other is what they call creak, or creaky voice. And I think that what you played us in Jill Abramson's uh, clip was actually creaky voice rather than fry, technically speaking, because it was a regular vibration which just happened to be low enough in pitch that that we could hear the individual oscillations, the individual sort of uh, creaky sounds, Hmm. sort of like the creak of a door opening. Interesting. Um, vocal fry occurs when it's also typically rather low frequency, but the pulsations are erratic, kind of like what happens if you sprinkle some water into hot oil uh-huh. and you hear the kind of irregular pop, 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 pop um, that happens in frying. So that's why it's called fry. Okay. It's kind of like, like frying food. And uh, they're related phenomena. They both tend to happen... Uh, when the vocal cords are relaxing and the pitch of the voice is getting low. And uh, so then the second thing to say is that everybody does it. I think if we were to look over recordings of uh, your old shows, we would find you doing it. Yeah. Uh, Though I haven't done that. um, You you know what? You do not want to. (laughs) Believe me. And uh, the third thing to say is that everybody has always done it. That is, if we look back, as long as there have been recordings of the voice, certainly I've looked back into the teens and 20s and 30s, uh, you can find people, um, you can find this phenomenon. Is, it's, it's a natural it's... thing, and it's always been around. Now, what people are, are saying, are perceiving and asserting, is that there's, it's happening more in certain parts of the population, that in particular there are 
there are women, especially maybe young women, maybe some kinds of young women, um, who are doing it more than uh, who are doing it more as a kind of fashion trend or something like that. Yeah. Now it's always been true that some people do it more than others, uh, either because of uh, idiosyncrasies of their voice or because of the way that they use their voice. Uh, what's not so clear, I think, is whether it's really true that uh, there's a trend sweeping the nation of a change in creek and fry production, or rather a trend sweeping the nation of change in creek and fry awareness. Yeah, maybe that's it, huh? are, are noticing it, and once you notice a kind of behavior, especially a kind of behavior that annoys you, <laughs> then you're likely to confirm your impression that, my God, this is happening over and over again more and more often, because, of course, when, it, when you notice it, then it annoys you. Is it? I mean, some are like attributing it to the Kardashians because they they might be making it more noticeable. Well, that's certainly possible. I don't think there's any evidence that that's yeah. true. I'm quite sure that Jill Abramson was not imitating the Kardashians. <laughs> I hope not. Right? Does yes. is is it? So it's been going on forever. Is it? Um, is it cultural? Is it? Are certain groups of people more likely to have it depending on where you're raised, how you're raised? Uh, it's certainly possible. There are languages, English is not one of them, in which creaky voice is, uh, is something that can distinguish words. That is, a given word, you know, cat with creaky voice would, be, would mean something different than cat without creaky voice. Hmm. Um, so in that sense, it's cultural. That is, it can become part of a language. Uh, but uh, um, the, the fact of the matter is that we don't, actually have a very great deal of evidence about this. Um, and since people are so interested in it now, it seems like uh, it's time for more extensive studies. One thing that some colleagues of mine and I at Penn are gearing up to do is there's a collection of sociolinguistic interviews called the Philadelphia Neighborhood Corpus, which uh, people in the sociolinguistics group at Penn have been collecting since 1972. And so we're going to go back over a sample of those recordings oh, wow. and look to see whether uh, Creek and Fry have become more common among women in general or young women in particular uh, over that period of time. Hmm. Do you know, is it more prominent for women to use Creek and Fry, or is it is it an equal opportunity vocal issue? Well, it's an equal opportunity vocal issue in the sense that males certainly do it. It's possible that it's... I, I, my own opinion is that the difference is mainly that it's more noticeable when women do it, and here's why. Um, what's happening with Creek in particular is that the pitch of the voice is getting low enough that the individual oscillations are coming along more slowly than what's called the flutter fusion threshold. So this is a little bit like the phenomenon that, that makes a movie or a video look like continuous motion to us. It's actually a sequence of still pictures, but they come by quickly enough, say 30 a second in the case of a video, that our eyes don't resolve them as individual pictures anymore, but we see smooth motion. And something very similar happens with sound. If you play 
a series of clicks, um, say 10 times a second, you hear a train of clicks. If you play a series of clicks 100 times a second, what you hear is a tone, a pitch. Yeah. You can't, your ear can no longer resolve the individual clicks. And the threshold for that uh, fusion, um, that acoustic fusion, is around, let's say, around 50 hertz, 50, 50 times a second. Now, lots of uh, guys may, their, the, their voice in low-pitched regions may get in, into that threshold region or below it. Um, but we, you don't notice it so much because you kind of expect their voice to be low. And there are some men whose voice is so low that they're right around or below the flutter fusion threshold all the time, whereas women's voices are normally in their modal range, you know, well above the threshold. Oh, I see. Yeah. Clear and well-pitched. But if they suddenly drop... Um, so that they're below the threshold, then it's really striking. Yeah. So that at least is true. Now, it, it's also conceivable that for either for physiological or cultural reasons, women execute the relevant gestures more often, but I think it's not clear that that's true. That's so interesting. Yeah, and um, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with uh, Dr. Mark Liberman, and he is uh, from the University of Pennsylvania as a trustee professor of phonetics in the Department of Linguistics there. He's also a, has a dual professorship in the Department of Computer and Information Sciences. We're going to come back. I also want to find out about other filler words, other things we use in our conversations that might fill up the space. Uh, you know, it, buy us some time. Um, we'll find out about that as well, if there are any other trends that way. Stick with us, folks. We're talking about vocal fry and your speech, finding out uh, what we do to sneak through on life when it comes to our our little interesting quirks. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about uh, vocal fry, which um, it is, it's the low vibratory sound that comes in people's speech, particularly at the end of sentences. We're also talking about another form of this type of vocal fry, which is called creak. Let's give you another example. Let's listen to clip 13 and see what the good doctor has to say about that. And now the news. Sales of U.S. new homes recovered in April after slumping in the previous two months. But Americans are still buying new homes at a slower pace than they did a year ago. <laughs> anyway, let's ask our good doctor about that. Dr. Mark Liberman is joining us. He's an American linguist um, and is also has a dual appointment at the University of Pennsylvania where he is a trustee of professor trustee professor of phonetics in the department of linguistics and as a professor in the department of computer and information sciences dr liberman what do you think of that one is that creek or is that vocal fry uh, i think it's fake it is fake it is fake yeah you don't you think the whole time i'm thinking that doesn't even sound real that's like somebody making fun yeah i it sounds uh, i don't know exactly where you got it from but it sounds like someone who's trying to produce 
uh, exa- an exaggerated form of uh, what they perceive to be Creek and Fry. Yeah. And I think they are successfully producing the phenomenon, but it doesn't really sound Legit. Like, like the way anybody would legitimately talk. It's um so uh, so when we're doing this, it's it's kind of just natural to us, right? Where are we? Are we trying to mimic what we're hearing from others? Or are we just what is it? Is it more likely to happen when we're tired? Is it what? What's the cause of vocal fry? Uh, well, the the cause is the basic nature of the mechanisms that we use to produce sound in the first place. And not just the mechanisms that we use to produce sound, but the mechanisms that pretty much all mammals use to produce sound, which is that we have these folds of tissue in our throat, in our larynx, and we uh, bring them together and um, build up air pressure behind them from our lungs, and that air pressure forces these two folds of tissue open, and a puff of air comes out, and the passage of that puff of air through something called, physicists call the Bernoulli effect, pulls the folds of tissue back together, but then the air pressure opens them up again, and it repeats. Hmm. And uh, this, um, this process, it's, it's, like this, it's the same process that's involved in making an oboe sound, in making a clarinet or a saxophone sound, um, and uh, it's uh, any, any system that oscillates in that way is prone to, as you might say, squawking. That is, it's prone to any, anybody who's tried to learn to play the trumpet or learn to play the oboe or the saxophone will probably remember this phenomenon where you start trying to make a note and it works well for a while and then suddenly it drops an octave or goes up an octave or maybe it just goes into a, something that sounds like a Bronx cheer that isn't even regular at all. Yeah. And this, is, this just comes with the territory. It's the, the nature of this kind of what uh, the physiologists would call aerodynamic myoelastic oscillation. Um, so it's, it's, it, in that sense, it's natural. And um, uh, we've learned both... Uh, We've developed through evolution, and we've learned individually in our own lives um, to control our vocal folds so that this doesn't happen all the time. But when we're relaxing um, our, the, the, these folds of tissue in our throat and the air pressure is falling towards the end of a phrase, then sometimes it gets away from us. Mm. Now, it, it could very well be that some people, and as I said, um, people, you know, as that clip that you played showed, people can produce it on purpose, so it doesn't sound very natural in that case. Yeah. Um, and it could very well be that, uh, you know, as a matter of cultural change, some people are starting to do it more. Um, it's not completely clear that that's true, but it certainly could be true. So one of the things you're finding is there's not a lot of research on it. Like, is it becoming more popular or not? Um, we're talking about it, but you're finding and you're going to go start doing some research on on what's really going on with this. I assume that there are other trends. Um, the word like, we hear the word like a lot. Uh, we I use the word um. A lot of people have little, you know, quirky filler words that we that we throw out there. What, what what have you learned as a linguist, and um, and do these words matter? What are we using them for? 
And what are we? What should we maybe be doing to maybe improve our well, speaking talking ability? Talking is hard, you know. Uh, talking when you're having to make up what you're going to say and uh, bring it out in real time and sort of have your thoughts keep up with your voice and your voice keep up with your thoughts. Uh, that is a hard thing to do, and it's often the case that you get partway through a phrase and you're actually not quite sure how to continue it. You're searching for the right word. You're trying to decide among some alternative ways to continue. And you've got to, so there's going to be some dead air. And uh, I, I think on the radio, you abhor dead air, right? Yeah, yeah. Don't like and, that. Uh, and, but it's a, that, this is a human trait to abhor, to, to hate dead air. And so people tend not to just stop while they're thinking of what to do, but to try to fill up that space in some way, even though it's a short space, even though it's only a fraction of a second. One way to do it is to prolong the last syllable. Another way to do it is to uh, stick in uh or some other, or um yeah. or some other filler. Now, um and uh are fillers that don't have any independent meaning aside from I'm... I'm telling you that I'm pausing while I'm thinking. I haven't stopped talking. I'm going to go on, yeah. but I'm not sure how I'm going to go on. There are other fillers that people can use. You mentioned like, but people can say more formal-sounding things like as it were or so to speak or uh, so it seems or you know things that don't mean mm-hmm. a whole lot and can sort of be thrown in almost anywhere. And, and I guess that's us, but there's a rhythm to it, right? I mean, like when I say um, I'm telling you I've got more coming, so don't jump in yet. So really there's a, there's a rhythm between two people as we're using these. Yeah, it, they, these, these things absolutely convey some information. One curious thing about uh and um is that there are uh, differences in age and sex in their use. Hmm. Uh, so about a decade ago, I was interested in two opinions that most people have. So many people think that as people get older, they become more disfluent. And many people also think that men in general are more disfluent than women. And these things both might be true. Uh, but I thought, uh, and since we had a large collection of transcribed telephone speech, I thought one easy thing to do would be to look at the frequency of a, uh, which the filled pause, which was transcribed in these in these conversations, as a proxy for other sorts of disfluency. Right. And sure enough, the older people were, the more they used a, uh, the more frequent a uh, was in their conversations. And at every age, guys, men were using uh more often than women. Hmm. So I thought, well, that's interesting. This is a case where the, the, the common opinion turned out not to be false. It doesn't always happen. <laughs> right. Uh, but then I thought, you know, for completeness, let me look at um. So I looked at um, and it was exactly the opposite. The oh, older wow. people got, the less they used um. And at every age, women used um more than men. Interesting. So that was strange. Yeah. That was strange. And uh, so I wrote it up in a weblog entry and left it there for the moment. <laughs> I, I mentioned it again about a year ago at a, an, another conference in another country. And at a, at a coffee break, people were talking about sort of strange things they'd noticed. 
And it happened that there was a, since this was a dialectology conference, there was a bunch of people sitting around the table at the coffee break who had similar conversational speech collections transcribed in other languages. And so they all pulled out their laptops and started looking. And we discovered in, in the first place, in British English and in Scottish English, the same phenomenon applies. It's not obvious that it should, but... You know, British English is very different in some ways from American English, but right. the same age and sex dependency was there. But even more surprising, in Dutch and in German and in Norwegian, um, where there are also, there's an open vowel, uh, or, uh, or, uh, kind of uh, pause filler, and then there's an um or um or um uh, kind of pause filler, that is one that ends with a uh, an M and one that's just a, some kind of central vowel. And uh, in every single language, the same dependence on age and sex hmm. uh, emerged, which is really bizarre. We don't really have an explanation for it. But anyway, we've written the, we've written this up and submitted it for publication, and I hope it will be coming. Oh, out. that's fascinating. Does does any of this, is the, is our perception different? Of people based on these uses, uh, you may not. I I don't know that we have the research yet on vocal fry. Do we see somebody that's using vocal fry? Does it impact how I esteem them or rate them? And or if if somebody uses, um, you know, us and ums and likes or as it were, does that impact my view of them? I think that depends on who the listener is. Uh, almost everybody has some pet peeves. Right. right. There are some people who just absolutely hate uh, like these are sort of approximative likes, the ones that that people that some people uh, throw in as kind of fillers. And there are other people who are really rubbed along the, the wrong way by vocal fry, especially when it's used by young women. And there are some people who are who go completely nuts when they hear someone uh, ending statements with a rising intonation and other people who get really upset if someone, uh, I don't know, uh, in, in the, not, not all that long ago there, were some pe- there might be some people who would get really upset about someone using contractions, yeah. saying I'm instead of I am or yeah. don't instead of do not. That is no, probably no longer with us, but uh, 50 or 100 years ago it might have been there. That, it, it's, so, it is. It's fascinating, though. So, so, so I think basically it depends if there are people out there who can't stand like, then if you use like, they're going to, you're going to annoy them to that extent, just as if they, uh, if they dislike a certain kind of clothing or they dislike tattoos or they dislike a certain uh, hairstyle, uh, you can annoy them. I mean, you, you, beyond a certain point, you can't. Right. In my opinion, you can't worry about all the ways in which you might offend somebody. You just have to try to be yourself in an honest way. And well, that, that's why I'm wondering at a conference where they're all phonetic and linguistic experts, that's got to be really scary to present a paper. Actually, people in that kind of field, in my experience, tend to be more tolerant than average. Oh, are they? Just, yeah, they've heard it all. They, yeah, they're open to yeah, it. Well, and, and they also are aware of the... Uh, social forces that lead to um, prejudices of this kind. Mm. I mean, some of these prejudices are have to do with regional accents. So there are some people who who don't like 
in, in America don't like Southern accents, some people who don't like accents from New York. I've met Southerners who don't like, who, who think that Yankees sound cold. Right. Um, in Britain, uh, you know... Uh, Americans, as, uh, right. George Bernard Shaw's uh, uh, play put it, uh, you know, no Englishman can open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate and despise him. <laughs> it's true. So, so, so part of it is this kind of uh, social geographical, um, socioeconomic status kind of difference. Uh, some of it is age. There are uh, um, language changes, and sometimes uh, it rubs people the wrong way uh, when a certain change takes place. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. So, well, there are all it. kinds of reasons that you could, bo- you could bother somebody with the way you talk. Totally. And, it's, and like you say, it's really just them. I mean, it's up for interpretation and... We can always give each other the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we appreciate you again, Dr. Mark Liberman. We uh, so much to learn, and, and it's fun to bring on experts like yourself to help us dig a little bit deeper and understand what's you know this has been going on a long time, and it's all basics and uh, just the function of speaking. Dr. Mark Liberman, again, the author of the book and a, and an interesting one, Vocal Fry creeping in. We're still here. We're going to take a break. Come back do a little coach's corner. Uh, I'm going to give you another one, another little thing that we might just throw in there as a filler. How about the word, I'm sorry? Have you ever said, I'm sorry, without meaning it? We'll be talking about that for a minute. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it interesting? We use language sometimes to build trust, sometimes uh, to drive people crazy, even accidentally, like the Kardashians use the vocal fry. But here's here's a little uh, – we found a vocal fry. I don't know if this is legitimately a vocal fry and our professor is no longer on the phone. But listen to this and, and tell me if this – does this create any emotion in you? Yeah, that sounds like a vocal fry. I am your father. Luke. Yeah, that's a vocal fry. That is one of the earliest vocal fries recorded uh, in, not in our galaxy, in another galaxy, far, far away. Yeah, that's a total vocal fry. How about this one? Um, um, I just used um. And we're using those to buy space, right? But do you know somebody that uses two words, I'm sorry? I'm sorry. Sorry. So sorry. They just quickly say sorry. And you don't even know if they mean it. They just say it. Could it be that some of us use the word sorry as a filler? And it's interesting as I work with clients, a lot of them are like, oh, if they would just apologize. This person never apologizes. They never apologize. So there's some that never apologize and there's some that are always apologizing. One of the things I would just suggest as your coach today is let's let's really think about how we use the word sorry. I believe I believe it could possibly be harmful to say sorry if you don't mean it and if you're just using it as a filler. I mean it might be just as effective to use the words uh-oh. Uh-oh. Matt, uh-oh. 
instead of I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's it, it's a great idea to apologize, no doubt, except if you're using the apology just to get the person to be quiet, just to end the thing and make everything go away, and you don't change your behavior, then you're just using it as a filler. I think people use it as a filler for a few reasons. Number one, it's just a habit. Most things in life, you know, just like we just make habits. And some of us have that simple little placeholder instead of the um or uh uh-oh, busted, we just say, I'm sorry. And we may have learned it quickly. I mean, I think there are some of us, I think many times women might be more inclined to quickly say, I'm sorry, just to make the giant quit being mad, make their husband quiet. So some say it, I think, just because it's a habit. Others might be saying it because um, they think it makes others happy. You know, just like a mom kissing a boo-boo, kissing some child's knee that's hurt. Saying I'm sorry when someone's sad might just be the fastest way to to get them to, you know, it's just I need something to do. I need something there. And if it makes you happy that I say that, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you didn't get that date, Ben. I'm so sorry that she stood you up for the third time in a row. I'm sorry. Stuff like that. No offense, Ben. That's my life. That was this weekend. Uh, sometimes we don't know what else to say, so we say, I'm sorry. I mean, when people go to a funeral and you're at the viewing and you don't know what to say, a lot of us say, We're, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. That's good. We just don't know what else to say. Sometimes we say it to avoid conflict. But what we might want to do is maybe get get out of the habit of just saying, I'm sorry, and instead get into your heart. If you feel sorrow and sadness for somebody and you actually have the feeling of it, then saying I'm sorry will probably matter. But just saying it without the feeling, people may not trust. So if we could buy ourselves a little time, if we could get in the get in the moment, figure out what we actually are feeling about things, it's it might it might help. Saying it too often might make you also look like you're always submissive. You're always giving in. You're always – so I'm not saying don't say sorry. I'm saying you might want to make sure you're feeling it. You might also want to make sure you understand what's going on. I mean somebody passing away, if if they had been battling cancer and in pain for the last six months, maybe I'm sorry isn't the best thing to feel that they finally passed away. Maybe what we should be feeling is relief. Maybe what we should also do is wait to find out what the person we're trying to console is actually feeling and not assume. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. I, I mean, I don't want it to be – I don't want to you know, dissuade you. I don't want to get you to not do this. I just do believe strongly that if you're using it quickly, just like I love you, you can say I love you the same way. And not mean it as well. So make sure you're actually feeling it. Make sure it's it's appropriate for the moment. A lot of times I'm sorry after you've had the conversation and understood what happened is more important than I'm sorry at the very beginning of it. Then you're informed. Then you have informed sorrow. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. 